my hope for you this morning is, is that you'd feel welcomed in Jesus' name because Jesus is the one who welcomes us and also that you would grow. And wherever you are in faith, that's my hope that you would grow. And when I first became a pastor, I attended a conference on vocation. Uh, it was for people who were just starting out in ministry. One of the keynote speakers was a man whose career had involved working with church leaders all over the country, uh, trying to help them do their jobs well. And he'd been doing it for a long time. The most important part of the pastor's work, he said, is to communicate the gospel clearly and effectively. Uh, the year before that conference, he had led a team of researchers to, to interview thousands of pastors to try to get a sense for how they experienced their jobs. Almost 70% of pastors that they'd interviewed all over the country reported very high levels of satisfaction with their work. And I felt that maybe this was a sign that I had chosen a good job. Uh, but then he added this, more than 70%, reported feeling unable to communicate the gospel effectively in the current context. I think about those two numbers together for a moment. Uh, it means that a majority are happy with their jobs, while a majority don't feel able to do the most important thing that their job has them doing. I left that conference thinking, uh, I need to go in a different direction. Uh, after this survey, the speaker tried an exercise at the conference that followed it last year. He gave the pastors index cards, and he asked them to take five minutes to write out what the gospel was on the card. Uh, and he did it three times, but he stopped doing it because the results were so discouraging for him. On most cards, it said something like this. The gospel says, believe the right things, feel bad when you do something wrong, and then you get to go to heaven instead of hell when you die. That was it. Uh, the word gospel is a Greek word, euangelion, and that's a compound word. You know the word angel, and that's a transliteration of the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. You is the prefix that's at the start of words like euphoria. And together, gospel simply means good news. Not, not some advice for what you should say that you believe, which will benefit you after all of your life is done. Not some statement about how you're supposed to feel, but first of all, a declaration about how God has decided to feel about the world that we find ourselves in. Not instructions or advice for steps that you should take, but first and foremost, the news that in Jesus Christ, God has come into the creation which has been helplessly thrown into chaos because of an enemy, because of disobedience. And, and he came because of love so that every single one of us in the dark places where we find ourselves can be rescued by the divine grace which reaches out and rescues us from those miseries that we could never save ourselves from so that right now I can believe in Christ and in my heart have the presence of God dwelling with me now. Not good news for what happens after I die, but this very moment, this very one, I can live differently because God has loved me and given himself for me in Christ. That's the gospel. Do you see it a little bit? I left that conference with a renewed sense of calling and decided that I would work above all things at trying to understand and believe the gospel, first of all, for myself. 
Not as an idea to tell other people, but the thing which constitutes my identity as Christian Andrews. And then to share it. And so this morning, I'm going to begin one step of the process of trying to open the gospel for all of us, uh, taking us through Christmas. And I'm going to build my teaching. And I want to be clear, this is going to be teaching. I'm going to speak fast, and there are a lot of words. I'm going to build this teaching around a story that tells of a day of good news. That phrase, good news, is what gospel is. There are a series of events which are narrated in the book of 2 Kings, which in a surprising way turn out to be a parable of the gospel. Uh, They have their own integrity as historical events, but if you peer beneath the events, there's a pattern there, which when illuminated will help us understand not only an old story and not only the gospel, but also the gospel, but the world in which we live right now. And I I don't mean that in an abstract sense, not world out there, but the one that you came out of to be here and the one you'll go back in as you depart from this place. In fact, even the world here this morning. The story in 2 Kings is a story of divine deliverance from an impossible misery. And let's be honest. Some of us in here are doing great right now. Others of us right now are in the midst of impossible misery. And the story that we read tells of God's miraculous deliverance from a situation from which no one has the power to deliver himself or herself. The details illuminate a deeper reality than the events that they recount. And what they're going to do for us this morning is serve as a scaffolding to give us a first step in understanding the gospel, which is the most important thing. Uh, In the sixth chapter of 2 Kings, we're going to look at that story together. The action recounted there takes place during the time of the divided kingdom for, for God's people. Israel had settled in the north, And in the south, the people had settled in Jerusalem. And in the north, the capital was Samaria. And that matters because the location of of the action is pertinent to what happens. And I want you to look at it with me in chapter 6 of 2 Kings, verse 24. We'll take this story one bit at a time. Here's how 24 reads. Some time later, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army. He marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. Now, Samaria was built on top of a great hill surrounded on all sides by a circular valley. The location was selected for security. A city built on a hill can more easily be defended uh, in the event of a hostile attack from an army. The high ground offers the advantage in every attack except for one, and that is a siege. Uh, In a siege, the army fills the valley around the city instead of attacking it head-on, and sets up its camp at a safe distance and then prevents all imports from reaching the city, trapping everyone in Samaria inside their own walls and then simply waiting. And when the army does that, this is what happens, verse 25. As the siege continued, famine in Samaria became so great that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. The fact that you don't know what a shekel of uh, a cab of dove's dung is is job security for me. So let me explain. Uh, this is the narrator's way of saying that the enemy camped out long enough to make it impossible to get food in the city. And almost none of us know what it's like to live with the threat of not having food or water. 
we're different than, most, uh, than a lot of the world in this way, let's say. Uh, this morning, there will be people who grow up right, right now who are born and live into famine, but not us. But here the narrator tells us that a donkey's head, which is the last thing that anyone would want to eat, costs 80 shekels of silver, which is more than the average family in Samaria would have earned in a year. And dove's dung was the fuel used for a fire to cook with, and you couldn't even get that. And this is the narrator's way of saying, in the city of Samaria, no one had what they needed, no matter how wealthy they were. So everyone was leveled by the miserable conditions of the city. Now, in verse 26, we get a picture of the king of the city. And here's where we see that it's even worse than just that. Look at this. Now, as the king of Israel was walking on the city wall, a woman cried out to him, help my lord, king. That is a very sensible request because the king is meant to help the people over whom he reigns. And so to ask this woman, for, for this woman to ask him for help makes sense. But watch his reply, verse 27. He said, no, let the Lord help you. How can I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? The threshing floor was the place where wheat was brought after harvest uh, to be processed so that people would have things to eat. But there's no wheat at all on the threshing floor. And the king's saying, what can I do? There is no food. The wine press, once the grapes are pressed there, uh, the wine which gladdens the human heart is available. And there's no gladness at all. And the king says so. And instead of offering to lend a hand as he ought to have as the authority who embodies God's presence, he says, no, let God help you. I can't do anything. And now... Now he asks her what's wrong, and here we see how gruesome life becomes during times of an enemy oppression. And this is hideous. 27, he said, excuse me, 28, but then the king asked her, what is your complaint? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son. We will eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. There's well-documented accounts of cannibalism in the ancient Near East during times of famine. And, and you know that still, even still, we don't ever want to look at this, but I want you to understand that as a pastor, I feel it's my responsibility to tell the truth that even on the day that we live in today, there will be children who die because they don't have enough to eat on the planet that we, we share. Verse 29, so we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son and we will eat him, but she's hidden her son. Now, what, what can you say about that? Samaria has become a place of unimaginable barbarity. Now, this is a graphic and sadly realistic picture of the madness to which people have been driven in this city because of the threat of starvation. The enemy has created a situation in Samaria that is utterly hopeless. And, and, and the king uh, should be the one who embodies hope, but he doesn't even hope. Uh, unless something happens to change their situation, everyone's going to die. The king, uh, when he hears it, He's responsible for saying, look, I don't know how to fix the problem, but I know God and he can fix the problem. That's what the king should say. I know that, that God delivered 
our people from oppression in Egypt, and that seemed impossible, and this also seems impossible, so I believe in God. That's not what the king says, because it's so bad in Samaria. Instead of embodying the faith of God's people like he ought to have, the king says this in verse 33, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I hope in the Lord? Uh, If we put the story on hold for a moment, There are among us followers of Jesus whose lives have become so bleak and difficult because of unexpected horrors that their heart has cried just like this king's heart. This trouble is from the Lord. Some of you have faced brokenness and disappointment that is so shattering, your heart has interpreted it as God's fault and you've said, why should I go on hoping in him? Some of you have been tempted with that. Some of you are facing that temptation even now. If you have never and you endeavor to follow after Christ and become a person of faith, you will one day or another find this temptation rising in your heart as it did for the king here. And in Samaria, what we see is a picture not only of how bad it is in Samaria, but here now follow me, a picture of the world that we inhabit right now. And and if we would grasp the gospel, which there is nothing more important from my perspective as your pastor that I should do than do my best to explain the gospel. But if we will grasp it, we have to look between the horror in Samaria to have new eyes to interpret the challenges that are in our world. Do you know how much our world is like Samaria? And I don't just mean out there because all of us could share stories of what's happening out there that we've heard on the news that would make us say, I can understand the parallel. But even the world right in here, and I mean my heart and your heart too, that we have some sense that things are not as they should be, that there's a kind of starvation in our world, which is not maybe physical, but do you know how starved people are all around us for spiritual truth? and for the closeness that seems to have evaporated from the God who's promised to love us. Meaning and purpose and a sense of of control in any measure. So much of that has gone away and instead it's been filled with anxiety and fear and worry and panic. If we look beneath the details of Samaria, which I intend to do with you, we will see three lessons about a first step toward understanding and grasping the gospel. And those are lessons about sin. And without understanding the way the scriptures depict the reality of our world in light of what sin is, we cannot grasp the gospel. And so this morning, I want to keep the story where it is. There's more to the story, and I will tell you that more to the story later. But keep it where it is and ask, what can we learn about sin? And here there are three theological doctrines that I want to draw your attention to, which Christians are led to believe by virtue of the scriptures teaching these clearly. And they will help us understand not only Samaria, but our world. Here's the first idea. Okay, the king believed that the problem was that God had abandoned the people. He thought God has moved away from us. God is not faithful. God has given up on us. God's protection is not. He thought that, no, the true problem is sin. And that's the first lesson. The problem in Samaria, the problem where we live, the awful conditions in that place and in our place are not the result of something that God has done to move away from us. Quite the contrary, Each and every grief facing each and every person in Samaria, all of the mess which was ruining the city altogether emerged from the same deep root cause and that's the problem of sin. I want to spend time on on vocabulary. Sin 
is a Hebrew word, one of a collection of words, which means in the Bible something that points in a direction which we're all familiar with, even if we don't know at root what the words mean. In Hebrew, sin literally means missing the mark or the way. Uh, Aiming at a target, but shooting wide or falling short. Walking on a path, but departing from it. In the same verbal field is a word, Uh, iniquity. You know that word, right? Iniquity literally means bent or twisted or distorted, lacking integrity, crooked instead of straight, trustworthy, and true. A third word in this family, which is often used in connection with these first two, is the word transgression, which means to revolt or to rebel. Knowing the expectations of an authority, but disregarding them nonetheless, forsaking rather than remaining faithful. At At the roots of it, the problem in Samaria comes very simply because of the sin, the iniquity, the transgression of the people of God collectively. And they could have known this. I want you to look at these words from Deuteronomy 11, uh, 26 through 28. Moses shared God's word to the people of God after they were delivered from their previous oppression in Egypt. And he said this, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I am commanding you today. If we stop there, God had given them a way to walk on for their own good so that they would have a life of blessing rather than a life of scarcity and madness. And very simply, uh, God spoke through Moses, follow that way and you will have that blessing. On the other hand, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, but turn from the way that I am commanding you today. Again, very simply, if you walk in the way that God is setting before you, it is good. And if you walk away, it will not be good. And just trace the history back from 2 Kings 6, and you'll see over and over again that the kings led the people of God in the way of iniquity of their fathers from the blessing into the curse. Why so much misery in Samaria? At deep down the root, the problem is sin. That's what's wrong with Samaria. And listen now. What's wrong with the world that we find ourselves in today is the same. Why so much war still on planet Earth, even though we've almost reached 2020? Why so many acts of barbarity, even though we've tried really hard to teach people to regard others with understanding? Why so much dehumanizing inequality between people because of how they were born? Why can't we get our acts together and disagree with civility and kindness rather than with meanness? Why are there so many judgmental and divisive sects within the Christian church? Why is there so much strife in personal relationships, conflict between parents and children, brothers and sisters? Why so much heartbreak in marriages? Why all the crookedness in business? Why so little, dis- why so little regard for generosity and gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and honesty? Why is there so little goodwill in the world? Why so much anxiety and mental illness? and fear, and aggression. And listen now, don't you just think about out there. Be mature and responsible enough to let those questions settle into your own heart and ask, what about here? And this is the perspective that the Bible answers emphatically. The problem is sin. Now, if you are a person who grew up around religious people, please listen now, who only ever used that word to describe other people that they wanted to judge because they did bad things which 
that these here did not do, then don't turn your ears off yet. That is an abuse of the truth which emerges from this story. The problem is sin for everyone in the city, everyone. And that illuminates a second step, which if you reject already that way of talking, stay with me long enough and then get enough information to, to reject it with maturity. The second idea, if we'll be open to it, that the story teaches us is that the effect is separation. That's the outcome. The effect of this sin, this waywardness, this departure, this twisted way, this uh, wandering away from rather than uh, with God or toward him, the effect of that is, is captured in the single word separation, which, which every person experiences on three different levels. All of us will experience this. Maybe we don't know it. We can see it in Samaria. The first level of separation is from God himself. And that's the most important, profound separation that comes with sin. I want you to look at these words from Isaiah 59. Uh, verse 1 and 2 read this way. See, the Lord's hand is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Rather, your iniquities have been barriers between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. These were first written to a group of people who were facing challenges, were crying out, were wanting help, but weren't receiving, in it, receiving it, and they began to think it must be because God can't reach us or because he doesn't listen. And here Isaiah says, no, that's not it. Your iniquity, your twisted way of walking through life has erected a wall between the two of you. So when God reaches out to heal your wounds, his hand is blocked by the wall which your sin has built. And he means to hear, but your iniquity has muffled your voice so that it's nonsense and he can't receive your cries for help. It's not that God has moved away from you. It's that your sin has separated you from God. We see it so obviously in the narrative of kings in the behavior of the king himself. He's supposed to be a man of faith guiding God's people into faithfulness. But instead of saying God can help you, he says God caused the problem. And the only way a man of God can say that is if he's completely separated from God. Do you see it there? And not only that, if... If sin separates us from God, and by the way, if you're wondering where is God, he's so far, entertain the possibility that this is, is subsequent to the, the separation that comes from sin for you personally. But in the city, we see the second effect of separation, which is sin separates us from one another. As soon as we're separated from God, listen, follow this logically. We're separated from all of the people around us on planet Earth who God gave to us for our mutual benefit, upbuilding, love, and support. All of the people around us are meant to encourage us and help us and build us up and make us feel confident and strong. Can I ask you, has everyone you've ever encountered treated you that way, yes or no? No, and it breaks the heart, doesn't it? Have you ever treated, have you treated everyone you've ever met in that way, yes or no? Again, that's the second effect of separation. We see it in the narrative of Second Kings because instead of supporting and helping and encouraging and equip one, equipping one another, in the story, the people lie to each other and deceive one another and they're every man for themselves. And that's how it is in Samaria because of sin. And listen now, the third level of separation is the one that's most immediately experienced by us as human beings, but we, it's so bad we don't even know we're experiencing it because sin thirdly separates us from our true selves. If you've ever struggled with addiction yourself or known someone who has, you know how the addiction makes it so they don't even know they have the problem they do. Sin is exactly like that with what it does to us with our own hearts. And so it's hard to see. Sin makes us unreasonable while preventing us from seeing how crazy we're being. 
And here I'm saying us, not other people. You need to accept this for yourself. It's what makes you go on pretending to be someone that you're not without even being aware of your inauthenticity. It's what enables us to justify our actions, which we would judge wrong in another person, but can't even admit in ourselves. Sin separates us from our true self, so we become instruments of evil, though we would be aghast to admit the truth that we also are the problem, just as it was in Samaria. The only way a mother can offer her own child up to preserve her own life is if she's fundamentally separated from her true self. Can you see it? And if we're honest with ourselves, not only do we see it in other people out there, but we know in those moments when we are aghast at what we said or how we behaved or what we, what we did to that other person, we would have to admit, I've been separated from the real me. Why was I that person? Samaria teaches us this second lesson, which we must take to heart if we're going to grasp the gospel. And now a third. And even still, if, if listening to me say that the that the problem is sin and the effect is separation. There's resistance in you. I want you to be open to this third lesson from the story because I think it's the one that most accurately, listen now, pictures our world as well as capturing the way the Bible describes the problem that comes because of sin. And it's this. The consequence is oppression. Follow me. When sin ruins everything, affecting separation at all three levels, the consequence of that is an oppressive environment. It's the most comprehensive way to describe the outcome of sin in the strictest sense of the word oppression. Okay, because oppression implies an oppressor. So because of our guilt, we live in a state of bondage to a hostile oppressor. Our existence in in this world is weighed down by a life-denying force in a world that is pervaded by the power of evil. And even if you don't believe in God or spiritual things, can't you see that this seems to be a good explanation for the mess that we find ourselves in? Of course, the consequences of sin are depicted in the Bible in other terms as well. And if you know the Bible well, you're thinking, wait a minute, sin is guilt, which results in judgment. Yes, of course. Uh, Sin is a sickness that results in death. Yes, that too. Uh, Sin is enmity with God that results in alienation. Indeed, Uh, sin is an impurity that makes a stain which no one can wash away. Yes, it is. It is an imprisonment from which no one can free himself. Yes, all of these, all of them are images which, though uh, in some measure distinctive, each point to the same overarching image, which is captured best, I think, in the reality that sin has the consequence of oppression. Think of Samaria for a moment and the consequences of sin uh, there. If you, if you step back from the theological claims and you just ask, uh, uh, as a reader of a narrative, what's the root of, of all their misery? It's the oppressor who's camped out around the valley. It is the power of that hostile enemy that has kept the food from coming into the city so that the people don't have what they need to survive. And the reason they're driven to such monstrosity with each other is they are under-resourced with what they need to live. Now take that and put it onto our world. Why so much madness? Because there is so little spiritual food that people are driven mad by their distance from God and their spiritual hunger. So they are consuming one another in their attempts to satisfy the problem, which is absolutely and utterly ruining their lives. The problem is that they live under an impressive enemy. That's how it's been since the very beginning. In the first story depicting sin in the Bible, this pattern is already evident. Does some of you know the the two characters who appear in the first story in the Bible depicting human sin? 
I heard about 15 of you whisper it so quietly, no one could hear it. Adam and Eve. And there, listen now, they're told by God not to eat from this one tree. As soon as they do, things go badly. Sin is the problem. They become ashamed of their bodies, afraid of God and hide from him, and they blame each other. And all three of those show that the effect is separation. And then the consequence from God, among other things, is expulsion from the garden into a world where from now on they will live in constant conflict with an oppressive, evil enemy. Look at Genesis 3.15a. Here's what it says. God said this to to the serpent, describing what would happen because of this sin. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God said that to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. From now on, the descendants of Eve will live under the oppressive power of the serpent. The serpent symbolizes the deceiver, the tempter, the devil, Satan, darkness, the power of evil present in the army surrounding Samaria because of sin. The world will be like a city under siege in which the enemy will create conditions which are forever ever hostile to life. Enmity with evil will be the norm in all of creation. And now... Pause, and let's review these three. First, sin is the problem. Second, the effect is separation. And then thirdly, the consequence is oppression from an enemy which is too great. And I'm telling you now this morning that this is not yet the whole gospel, but to grasp the gospel, the good news, the news which tells you that even if still you feel like you live in Samaria where people are devouring you, you don't have to. The news which says that Jesus Christ is the victor who in his love and grace has conquered every misery. That news, to grasp it and accept it, you need to start with this understanding of sin, which is present here. And I would say, even if you tend to resist these ideas because of the religious communities that have poorly communicated about them in the past, you know deep down in your heart that these three things are true. And maybe you haven't used this language, but you've seen it. Because the life that you live in and I live in is like Samaria in ways that are horrible. Not too long after that conference that I went to when I first became a pastor, my, my wife Michelle and I and another group of Christians, we moved into Red Bank. And there we rented a basement room and, and we, we started cooking meals for any kids who were in high school who would come and agree to listen to us teach about Jesus. There were about three or four kids who were church kids and the other 75 had no church background at all. We never met any of their parents. There were no permission slips. They showed up. We, we, we ate together and we, we laughed together and I got to tell them stories about Jesus. Many of them had never heard any of these stories. And then they went home and they came back again. One Thursday evening, it was about 11 o'clock and there was one young man, I'll call him Joshua, who'd been there just for a few weeks, who was still there when every other kid left. And so I said to him, Joshua, do you need a ride? And he said, no, I'm not going home. And I said, how come? He said, my dad won't let me. And so I called his dad. His dad didn't answer. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I don't know. And so we took him back to our house and let him sleep over. In the morning when he was eating cereal, I said, Joshua, why weren't you allowed to go home? He said, my dad got angry at me because I didn't take out the garbage. And I, I thought, okay, yeah, right. So I got in touch with this father. And the next week I sat down with him for coffee. I thought for sure his dad would tell me a different story. His dad didn't. His dad said, Joshua is garbage. I can't wait until he's 18 so I finally can legally have nothing more to do with him. And then he said stuff that I can't repeat. 
about his son here. You, you're going to think I'm making this up. He said, the worst part is I can't study in the evenings. I'm working in graduate school because I want to become a pastor. I, I, I was a young pastor then. I didn't know what to say. All I said was, I went to seminary. How can a father treat his child like that? Some of you here have come from families where that's how your dad treated you. How can that happen? How can a man like that think he should go become a pastor? The answer is that we live in a city under siege. That's, that's the answer. And it would be one thing if from today you thought, oh, that's why those other people are so miserable. And, and it is true, but, but if instead of that, you were willing to accept the challenge, which I think the gospel actually presents to all of us, it is not only to interpret the actions of other people differently, and that is what the gospel invites us to do. It invites us to stop being so surprised. It invites us to stop saying, oh, I know the problem is there's not enough education out there, or technology hasn't advanced far enough yet. Once it does, then everything will be fixed. The gospel says to us, Keep working at understanding. Learn. It's a good thing. Try your very best to make political structures that are more rather than less just. Use technology to help the world as much as you can. But the gospel says, just don't ever make the mistake of believing that you are going to be able to fix the problems because the enemy that surrounds the city is stronger than everybody inside. And unless there's external help, everyone's dead. Not only Joshua's father but also everyone else. And so here's the second thing that this story invites us to do is to reflect honestly on ourselves and to perhaps begin to interpret our own fumbling, our own false starts, our own regression on the paths that we know we should be on as the result of the truth that the problem isn't that we haven't been trying hard enough, it's that sin has separated us and the consequence is that we're oppressed. Because if we don't do that, you know what happens? Then we leave people like Joshua's father and we feel righteous in judging them as being awful. And I did that. And, and when I look back on my life in very different ways, I can see how this city under siege which I live in has gotten into my heart and turned me into a monstrous person as well. Because it's not just in, in dramatic stories like the one I've told you, but in small ways too. And, and I know you do this, in responding to the person who you promise to love forever with less patience than you want to. In, in looking down on yourself so that you reject the one and only person that God has given you to have any control over yourself. In letting the lies that other people have said about people like you define your sense of worth. In harboring resentment and turning against people rather than for them. All of these are signs that you also are affected by this sin. And so this story invites us, these three facts invite us first to say, I'm going to be humble rather than self-righteous in my judgment of everyone on this planet. Because instead of only seeing them as perpetrators, I'll be willing to see them also as victims of this hostile power. Can you see it? And that's hard to do. I met with Joshua's dad the week after because I thought, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. And I told him, I can tell you about seminary. And I thought, I'm going to sit down with this guy and tell him, how dare you ever go to seminary, you loser. And I sat down with him. And before we got started, he said, hey, before we talk about seminary, 
He looked up at me. I know I'm a really bad father. I've never been good at it. Joshua's mother was an alcoholic and she was mentally ill. She left me just a week after Joshua was born and the last thing she told me is, he isn't yours. She had an affair with one of my friends and I adopted him, but every time I see him, all I can think about is that. Doesn't excuse being a wicked father, does it? No, of course not. But doesn't it shed a little more light on the world we live in? It's not that anyone is not guilty. All of us are guilty universally. It is true that our guilt comes and arises because of the oppression of an enemy. But listen now. The rest of the story in Kings shines a light on the truth of the gospel, which I want you to take with you in addition to those three ideas about sin. And it is that the enemy has been defeated by God, completely defeated, and the world still doesn't know it. And in ignorance of that truth, we go on devouring one another, but we don't have to. In the narrative, right after the king says it's God's fault, we meet four leprous men who are standing outside of the city gate. And I'm going to give you a brief version of the story that will unfold in subsequent weeks. They are so desperate, and just as desperate as everyone in the city, because now everyone's starving, not just the lepers. And so they decide, why not defect to the enemy camp? The worst that can happen is they'll kill us on our way there. Maybe they'll have mercy on us and let them join them and we'll have some food. But as they make their way to the tents in the darkness, God himself makes the sound of chariots and an army ring into the ears of all of the enemies so that in the darkness, the enemies flee. And when the, when the lepers arrive at the tents, there are no enemies there. They've all been vanquished by something that God chose to do. And so the only thing left in the tents are all the riches and all the food and all the provisions that not only the lepers could use, but everyone in the city could have from now on to have zero threat into the future. And where you and I stand this morning is right there, invited to see that the enemy has been defeated in Jesus, that everything we need is right there for us, and not only for us, but for every other person who's going on suffering unnecessarily. And the only difference is they haven't learned yet what we've been given to know, which is that God has handled it. And the question for us is, will we believe it? And what will we do with that belief? And here I can tell you that when I believe it, I'm free. And when I forget it, I'm back in the city. And the same is true for you. But let me close with this word from the New Testament, from the, the new covenant, from the promise that comes in reflecting on the truth that in Jesus, our sins have been managed and the enemy has been destroyed. From Galatians 1, 3, and 4, receive this as God's word to you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to take your time with those first words. Grace and peace to you. The enemy has been destroyed. Grace and peace to you from our Father who loves us even while we're sinners. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself up for you. Grace and peace to you from the one who defeated 
the enemy of sin and death and the power of enmity between you and God and all of creation. Grace and peace to you in the one in whom you are invited to be a new creation so that everything, is, everything old is gone and everything has become new. And now look at the second half. Who gave himself for our sins to set us free from this present evil age. Let's join our hearts in prayer. God, I thank you that in Christ you've set us free. I thank you that the power of the enemy is no power any longer. I thank you that every prison which once held us has had its doors shattered and opened. I pray now in faith each and every one of us would be invited to see with new eyes the way forward from where we've been into the new life that you've given us in Christ. God, if for the first time someone needs to take that step, remove every barrier and help them run to you. If yet again one of us needs to return, help us do it with confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but in your grace. We love you and thank you for the way you instruct us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.